Hope you guys are well. Hope you had a good 4th of July. Whether you weathered the Saving Private Ryan Beach or uh, hid in your homes. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to continue there this morning. Now remember, uh, just by way of introduction, Paul is writing to Corinth and he is trying to help them. And that's what we kind of covered last week, looking as Paul goes through different sufferings that he endured as the evidence of his ministry for them and his care for them, which I think is noteworthy. I think in general today, if we try to, uh, or oftentimes we're, uh, I don't know, it feels like we're almost trained that uh, essentially like the bigger your church is, the more successful you are, or somehow the more godly you are, or something like that. And that's just not necessarily the case. In the end of the day, Paul points to the proof of his care for them, not in saying, hey, look, I wrote a huge part of the New Testament, so you should respect me. He doesn't say, hey, look, uh, you know, I got knocked, or I, you know, I, I fell down because God knocked me down. Did God knock any of you down to save you? Well, he did me. You know, he doesn't point to any of that. What he points to is he says, look at, and not just himself, but he says, look at, in chapter 6, all the struggles we went through for you. And he points to the evidence of his love for them, not out of all the stuff that God did through him, but of the suffering he was willing to go through, right? The way that he was willing to be whipped, that he was willing to uh, be involved with riots, that he was willing to have his life threatened. At one point, it seems that he's stoned either to death and comes back, or he's stoned within an inch of his life. Um, and then he gets right back up after those injuries, and he walks right into, back into the city and begins to talk to people about Christ. So Paul, remember, he's outreaching to the Corinthians because there are false teachers there, and they're challenging him. And that's kind of what we looked at uh, last week in this whole theme. Uh, his whole ministry is based on, remember, in chapter 5 and other places, he's, uh, he's calling us, uh, the Corinthians, and, and us by uh, proxy, to be ministers of a new covenant, ministers of reconciliation, right? He says that we are ambassadors for Christ, uh, begging people. To know Christ. And so that's Paul is sharing that with us, but it's all on the basis of the reality of what Jesus did, right? And that's what we really kind of honed in on last week and the last couple weeks. This is the idea that ministry for us doesn't come from guilt and shame, and so we better try hard or God's going to be angry with us. That's a very anti biblical idea. But ministry for us is because we've been reconciled to Christ, right? that we've been justified, that we've been forgiven. And, and so now there's this relationship that begins and, and we're to walk in that relationship if we want to receive everything that God has for us. And so in, we're going to start here this morning by where we left off or cover a little bit of what we left off last week. And we're going to start in verse 11. And so in chapter 6, 2 Corinthians six eleven, he says this, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts to us. So this is important, right? Because this is our context, and it's the same context. It's the way that we're moving into this next portion in chapter 6, which is probably a, a very, if you've been you know, bumping around Christian circles very long, it's a very quoted verse. But it might actually surprise us this morning uh, that where it comes from and not necessarily the context that it's always used in. 
But he says, he says, look, we're talking to you. I'm involved with you. I'm going through this with you because our hearts are open wide to you. Right? We love you guys. That's why we're involved with this. And that's, that's the reality. If, if we don't love people, we don't get involved in messy stuff, right? Unless it's like a, a, like a legalistic, offended point of view. I don't like what you're doing, so I'm willing to just be a jerk about it, and I'll address it. But when we truly love people and we're getting involved in lives, it's a much different thing. And that's what's happening in Corinth, right? Corinth would be super easy to write off as a church. Most of us, well, I can't speak for you. I would have been very tempted to leave it, Right? Because what's happening? You have a dude who has an open sexual relationship with his stepmother. And, the, and the, the, Paul in 1 Corinthians says that you guys are boasting, that they boast about it. In other words, as a church, they're like, look how open we are. Look how, look how greedy we are. You have people suing each other in the church. You have people showing up to communion drunk already. You have people, rich people shaming poor people because they basically have potlucks and they eat all their potluck food and watch the other people go hungry. So this is pretty dysfunctional. I mean, can you imagine... You come bumping into church one day, and that stuff's going on. You know, brother so-and-so is like wobbling up to the communion table. Right? Meanwhile, in the corner, some dude's making out with his stepmother. Right? That would be weird, right? And yet Paul is hanging in, writing them letters, visiting them, because he cares for them. So it's a completely different deal. It's not Paul addressing them as, I'm offended, and I don't like your behavior. He's addressing them as, we have this incredible Savior and this life to live in Christ, and you're falling short of it, and I love you, and I want to explain it to you and, and call you to it, because it's so much better than all these things that you're doing, probably to cope with different things in your life, these sins that you're committing in order to find some sort of gratification. So it's with that heart that he begins in verse 14, and he begins to speak about uh, idolatry and different things like that. But in verse 14, we'll pick up there, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord." Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And we'll stop there. So Paul, with this huge... Uh, context that we've discussed of ministry and love and reconciliation, ministering from a place of relationship with God, walking in all that he has for us, being involved in the, the building of his kingdom through the reconciliation, as he, he told us there in chapter 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against them. This, this whole back story, if you will, or back <clears throat> context, that's where he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I'd be willing to bet if you've been around church for more than about five minutes, you've heard that before, right? Or the King James Version says, don't be unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers. And, and we typically use that to say, well, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever, and you probably shouldn't jump in business with unbelievers, and that kind of stuff. And that, that may be accurate, and we're not even here to necessarily comment on those things. We're just here to look at where it's coming from, and the idea is not just individual relationships. The idea here is in the church, right, because he's addressing the church. 
And there seems to be an issue. We know that there were false teachers in Corinth, right? He mentions that. Paul talks about it all the time. He talks about how people in Corinth badmouth him, how they, they say that he writes really powerful letters, but he's a really weak speaker. Um, he talks often about how he wept and he loved them and all these different things, but they don't reciprocate that as we read for him. So he's, he's also addressing these false teachers. Now, the, the major false teachings basically revolved around Gnosticism, which is the idea of kind of mysterious uh, information or mystery. And by digging into certain things, you can find this mysterious information. Uh, a lot of it was linked with some stoic ideas, some ideas about that all matter or evil, all sorts of things, right? Then you also have Judaizers that are essentially the kind of the big three are uh, Jesus is a nice start, right? But you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the Sabbaths, and you need to follow the dietary laws. Those are kind of the, the big three Judaizer points. And Paul is constantly saying, no, that's, that's not right. We're free in Christ. We're set free from the law. The law had one job for us, and it was to show us our sin and to bring conviction into our lives. It was never meant to make a person righteous. It cannot make a person righteous only Christ can do that, right? So he's, he's combating those ideas. So he says, and he puts this forward, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, now, the, the first thing, let me just say briefly what he's not talking about. If you recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or if you're not familiar with it, you can uh, look back there and read it. But Paul addresses this weird sexual relationship between this guy and his stepmother. And he says, you guys shouldn't be boasting about this. This is bad. In fact, what you need to do is you need to put this guy out from your church. You need to excommunicate him. And, and then you need to essentially allow him to not experience the blessings of fellowship and uh, the, uh, the blessings of God's presence so that he can uh, repent. I'm totally like summarizing here. <laughs> um, and, and in this, this whole dialogue, he says, you might remember when I wrote to you before. So remember, this is 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you before. So evidently, as we know, this 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that he wrote to them. It's just the first letter that we have. But he says that when I wrote to you before, I told you don't keep company with fornicators. And he says, but I did not mean don't keep company with immoral people of the world because then we'd have to leave the world. Does that make sense? So what Paul is communicating in chapter 5 of the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, He's saying, look, in a church scenario, if you have someone who's claiming and walking and saying, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but they have this other kind of life. And there's other sins that are mixed in there. He says there's a time where you finally have to say, hey, you can't be with us anymore. You can't fellowship with us anymore. But he's saying, I am not telling you that those rules, those ideas extend to unbelievers. He goes, because then you couldn't live on planet Earth, right? Because that's, that's before all of us, before we were saved, we're considered immoral people, people without the morals that God has. So when we come back to our text today, Paul is not saying that you and I don't have relationships with sinners. In fact, we're actually called to have relationships with sinners. They may not be our best friends or our spouses or something like that, but we're called to interact with people because God is building his kingdom, right? And his kingdom is full of what? Sinners. How do sinners find out about Jesus? Do they find out about Jesus from other sinners, other people that are, that are, that are rejecting God? No, right? They find out about from who? Hopefully us, right? In fact, if you look at, uh, just in our church alone, it, sometimes we used to have a meeting with the other pastors uh, on the, the uh, peninsula, and it was all in good fun. They used to mock me because we don't have an ad in certain newspapers and things like that. And they used to, and it's, I, I use the word mock, it was just, all in good fun, just really, I think anyway. But anyway, so we just, just review. 
And they would be like, why don't you have an advertisement in the Chinook Observer? And why don't you do a big thing for Easter? And I said, well, you know, at the end of the day, it might be laziness, all right, when I was by myself. But realistically, it's because our church has been built from you guys. Our church is what it is because you guys invite people. And I'm a firm believer in that. In the reality that healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. When you're excited about Jesus, you're going to go to work and somebody's going to be having a terrible day and the Holy Spirit's going to move in your life, right? And then you talk to that person and it may be a seed planted or it may be a salvation. It is what it is. But the reality is Paul is definitely not saying that we're not to be with sinners. And I'm using the word sinners as, as somebody who hasn't received Jesus. We're all sinners. But someone who has not received Christ as their Savior. So his point is not to avoid that. His point is different. So what is a yoke? Uh, not, you know, Y-O-L-K, but Y-O-K-E. A yoke is basically a wooden bar, right? If you remember, can think back to Bible stories, if you've been a believer that long, or history books. And it's the idea of essentially this double-arched piece of wood, and you had two animals in it, and it was to do work. And so the, the piece of wood would come across them, and you'd have like this big steel or iron eyelet that came out the back of it, and then there would be two loops underneath it that would go around and rest on the, kind of the, the chest and shoulders of, of the beast of burden, right? Typically, it was oxen. Now, he's also reaching back because in Deuteronomy, there was a law uh, that was that you don't put an ox and a uh, donkey in a yoke together. You don't do that. And the reality is because, think of it this way, if you have one animal that's super strong, and then you have one animal that, that may be sort of strong, but, but not in comparison with the other, and then you have them attached together in that, that, that little eyelet, that iron portion right there, would have typically some sort of chain or rope attached to it. And then, like for example, in the United States, they used uh, yoked oxen to log. They would use oxen to bring huge logs. So they have these huge burdens, sometimes tons, that they'd be dragging behind them. In ancient times, for about the last 6,000 years, you'd have plowing, uh, you'd have stone removal, tree removal by farmers across you know, the globe, really. That's what these oxen were used for. So if you have this huge tension spot in the middle between the two animals, if one starts to pull harder than the other, what's going to happen? Well, then that becomes a fulcrum, right? And then the other animal pulls forward, but the bar doesn't flex. And then the, the uh, iron portion, or an, some used another wood portion that would go underneath, that doesn't really flex much. And so it snaps the neck of the donkey. Eventually, the other animal becomes too powerful, and it twists too much, and it, it hurts either the shoulder or the neck of the, uh, the weaker animal. So it breaks. So the, the whole idea of the yoke is two people, and this, this literally two animals, but in our case, two people or a church that is laboring together, that is moving forward, dragging a burden, doing work together. And the point that he's making is that if we bring in philosophies, if we bring in uh, different things, we'll talk about it because he gives five examples, that what's going to happen is someone's going to get injured. And it's not always the unbeliever, and it's not always the believer, but someone's going to get injured if we bring those things into play. So now he gives five examples. The first one, he says, is what do the righteous or what do righteous and wickedness have in common? So the word common there is, is what can they share? It just means to share something. 
And so the first question, the word righteousness there, it's the same Greek word that's used in most of the New Testament whenever righteousness is mentioned. And it's the idea of the absence of judgment, right? So we have been declared righteous by the blood of Christ, right? We would agree with that. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, really the whole book of Romans, Galatians, that we have been declared righteous by God before God because of the blood of Jesus, right? We're told that we get, we get saved, we receive regeneration uh, by grace through faith, right? We don't even get saved by faith, we get saved by grace. Grace is the power of salvation. It's the, the well that enables it to happen. Faith is just that that opens us to that well, right? So it, we have to be careful saying, we have to be careful with that. It is the grace of God that saved us when we cried out to him, Okay? So because that is the truth, we have a lack of judgment upon our lives as Christians, right? Thessalonians, when when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says it this way. He says, God has not destined you for wrath, right, but for salvation to the believers. In in, in, in Romans chapter 8, he says it this way. He says that those whom he foreknew, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, uh, I don't take a Calvinist point of view on that. I don't think he, I think the scripture is very clear that he didn't predestine who would believe on him, but those that would believe on him, the people that he foreknew, gnosko, that he, he had experiential knowledge of before we were born and that we would receive him, choose him, those people he gave a destiny to. So we have this incredible calling as Christians and judgment is not part of it. You say, well, wait a minute. What about the first Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, what we just read? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will. That word judgment seat is actually bima. It's not the same word, nor is it the same thing as the great white throne judgment in Revelation. In the great white throne judgment, when we read that, what happens? The sea gives up its dead, right? The earth gets up its dead. Hades gets up its dead. or The, the Sheol, the place of the dead. They're all given up. And what, what's the judgment there? The books are open, right? The book of life is open. And that, that whole judgment, is your name there or is it not there? And everyone's name who's not written in the book of life, everyone who has refused over the course of a lifetime to receive Christ as Savior will be honored in their decision and they will be removed from Christ forever. And that's what hell is. It's a place where God is not, okay? And I'm not even going to speculate what that's like. But the Christian, the 2 Corinthians 5, it's a different, it's, it's bima or bema, however you'd like to pronounce it, And it's the same Greek word for the Olympics. Like, you know the Olympics where people wrap themselves in their flags and they get the the medals and so forth? Well, in the ancient Olympics, uh, there weren't really a lot of flag wrapping that went on, but they had laurel crowns and so forth. And so the the thing that they stood on, the first, second, and third, the thing that they stood on was called the bema seat. That's what they were on. And so Paul uses that for Christians, right? So our judgment is not, are we saved or are we not saved? It's not, is there condemnation or not condemnation? Because we don't have condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, right? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our judgment is based on the reality that if we have cultivated a life of sin, if our soul has become, if we're just habitually greedy, if we're habitually lustful, if we're habitually uh, upset, that stuff doesn't go into heaven, does it? So at the end of the day, it says that those things, the wood, hay, stubble that we build is burnt away. But verse 10 says, but they, he, he, himself, so he himself shall be saved by fire. So there's, the judgment isn't, are you going to heaven? The judgment is this stuff that you reaped in your life that was rotten and destructive. It's forgiven in the blood of Christ, but it can't go to heaven. 
And I imagine it would be pretty disappointing to stand before the Lord and experience some sort of shame, because 1 John tells us that we don't want to be ashamed at his coming, to experience some sort of shame because we held on to sin and wickedness that God said, you need to get rid of that. The issue doesn't become salvation. It becomes like, what are we building in our lives and what has to go to be conformed to the image of Jesus, which is the destiny of every believer. So when we get to here and we get to this, it is, is we're, we're talking now about judgment. It's, it's, it's what does righteousness have with judgment? Or excuse me, righteousness have with wickedness? We have no judgment coming to us in that context for sin. We have been forgiven by Jesus. But wickedness, which is lawlessness, that's what it means. If we're those that have an absence of judgment, we're right before God. How is it that we could share anything with wickedness? Where can the sharing be? Now, these, are, uh, these questions are, in a sense, they're a little bit, he's not saying it's impossible, right? Because as Christians, we have shared in wickedness, haven't we? We've sinned. Anybody else here sinned as a Christian? Once or twice? Maybe yesterday, right? So he's not saying it is impossible for a Christian to share in wickedness. We can absolutely share in wickedness. But what's, what's our whole, go back to our whole context so far in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. What's our whole context? Ministry. The church. So as a church, as a conglomerate of people, there's no place. There's no sharing. There's, there's nothing that can bring good or has, is there any point to having wickedness and having righteousness in the same place. It has no sharing point. You might think of it in a practical way. For example, where James says that the wrath of man cannot achieve the purposes of God. Right? So my unbridled wrath is wickedness. It's lawlessness. It's breaking what God says is good. I cannot be in a church and be exercising that and expect to see God's purpose achieved in human beings. Right? But yet we see that all the time, don't we? In us and in others. Where we see, we, we want to dominate, we want people's, uh, we, want, we want their, their um, uh, behavior to be different. We want to change them. You can't do that here. And that's fine, because behavior hurts other people. But the reality is that people have to change from the inside. Right? They have to change, they have, to change have, a, have a heart change. They have to have, be moved by God. Is it good to stop behavior? Of course it is. <laughs> We're on board with that, right? If you are used to hitting people, it's good if you just stop hitting people. Right? But it's better, and the goal of the gospel is not to stop hitting people. It's to love people. Right? Significantly different. So he says, look, in a church setting, and for us, that's not, it can't work. And the reality is if you have in a church setting someone who's bold and willing to just be wicked, be lawless, do what they want to do, treat people how they want to treat, guess what's going to happen? Someone next, someone's neck is going to be broken. Right? Because you're going to have a you're going to have some kind, simple saint that's just trying to live their life in Christ and they're getting pulled on by wickedness and they're going to get hurt, right? How do we see that? We see it all the time. This is one of my favorites just because to, to some extent, my wife and I walked through, well, more my wife than me. I remember, uh, and for some reason, this is this, this constant thing that revolves through churches, so please forgive me, but uh, kids' formula, like, I've seen so many moms, and you, you, I sound melodramatic, but it's the truth. I've seen so many moms get hurt because they don't produce enough milk. And for a, a lot of times, I'm not saying it should be, but in women, it's like this identity thing. I can't provide for my own child. So they're hurting inside, right? And meanwhile, they're going to the doctor, and the doctor's saying, hey, your kid's losing weight. You need to get weight on this kid. 
And you're like, I'm pumping 20 hours a day, right? And I'm taking all the supplements and I'm doing everything I can. And I just don't produce so much. And so the doctor says, hey, why don't you get some Similac or whatever? And then somehow at church it comes up and, 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 and there can be people and they're like, you use a rubber nipple? Mmm. You use formula? Mmm. Don't you know that like 70% of kids that use formula go on crime sprees and they're fat? You know? And, and don't you know if you have a rubber nipple, your kid will never latch on again? Right? Dude, don't tell me I'm wrong, because you guys all know. It's what Facebook was made for. I swear, half the stuff on Facebook is about breastfeeding, right? But there's this whole thing that happens. So, so somebody's willing to lay aside love and support and care for another person because they have this idea that simulacs the devil, right? And what happens to that poor mom? Her neck gets broken, because she's pulling as hard as she can in the direction, trying to find Jesus, and then someone else who's just more active and more dominant just won't let up on it, and all of a sudden that, that yoke is... And someone gets hurt. Now, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a silly example, but it's, it's very true. But it can happen in all sorts of ways. If you just have someone who's, who's gossiping like crazy in your church, someone who's more than happy to badmouth people in your church, right? You know what's funny is that if we go back to 1 Corinthians 5, it's like, you know, put them out from among you. The drunkard, the fornicator, we're like, yeah! And then he's like, the gossiper. And we're like, whoa. <laughs> Easy there, Paul. Right? He says, if you have a person who's gossiping in your church, you kick them out. Isn't that interesting? You, 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 you write them a letter. You say, you can't be here because you're destroying people with your talk. It's pretty wild. Gossipers break people's necks and yokes because they destroy the people around them. So he's saying, look, at the end of the day, especially of unbelievers, there will be unbelievers that will be perfectly happy to be at church. In fact, Jesus made a reference to that, right? In the tares among the wheat, right? The, the parable, the tares among the wheat. When the workers discover the tares among the wheat, they ask the, the, the farmer, they say, hey, should we rip the tares out? And Jesus says, no, because if you pull them out now, you'll uproot some of the wheat. So I'm not trying to cast suspicion or shade, but the point is this. Jesus acknowledges that there's people that are in the body that are not of the body. There's content to be in the body. And it's not our job to sniff those people out. Right? This isn't a, the, the application from this isn't like we should pull each other aside and be like, so are you really saved? Can you please confess? <laughs> We're not doing that. But the point is that for as much as we can, we need to be those that reject any kind of association with righteousness and lawlessness because we don't want, we don't want people to be harmed. We don't, we don't want necks to be broken. He goes on from there and he asks another question and he says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, you, if you, again, if you've been around church for a while, you probably, the, the word fellowship is koinonia, right? You ever been to a church, they have koinonia groups, sounds kind of edgy. It's the idea of deep fellowship. That's what it is. It's, it's not just like uh, on, on the surface, hey, how you doing, kind of stuff, but it's, it's a sharing. It's a, the idea there's interaction and a depth to the relationship that's occurring. And multiple times through the, old, uh, the New Testament, we're called to fellowship or koinonia with God, and we're called to fellowship with one another, so he makes this statement. He says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? And uh, you know, what, what koinonia or participation can they have with each other? 
And the reality is if you're in a dark room and you turn a light on, what happens? There's no darkness anymore, right? Light always overcomes darkness. Darkness, it cannot be so dark that a light can't shine, right? In fact, the darker it is, typically, the, the brighter that light looks, right? So if you're in a completely dark room, pitch black room, can't see your face, and you light a candle, that candle will make you, you know, your eyes wince. So he's saying, how can light and darkness, how can the idea of illumination, and you think about what does light represent to us? Truth, throughout this in the New Testament alone. Truth, um, it, it introduces, uh, in some respects, judgment. It introduces the idea of illumination or revelation. Right? So he's saying, how can, in a church that you're involved in and doing things, how can you on the one side in, uh, stand for and have darkness and on the other side have truth? How can you have one side of your church saying, we're set free from the law in Romans chapter 7 and we don't have to go back to that bondage. Then on the other side of the church, you have people saying, no, 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 you need to be circumcised and make sure you don't eat pepperoni. Right? It's irreconcilable. It, it, there's, there's no sharing. There's no participation between the two. You're going to end up with division. You're going to end up with a separation. You're going to end up with brokenness, right? And if, you're, and if, if you want to kind of minimize that down to like Romans 14, where he starts talking about uh, vegetarianism versus non-vegetarianism, or meat sacrifice to idols and meat not sacrifice to idols. And he goes through this whole thing about, he says, look, the people that are willing to eat the meat sacrificed to idols because they have liberty from the cross, he says, those people with that liberty and that faith do not look at the people who refuse to eat the meat sacrificed to idols and judge them and measure them or condemn them. He says, make sure you don't do that. And he says, the, he says also, or despise them, make little of them. He says, but if you're a person that abstains from that meat and your conscience doesn't allow you to eat that meat, then you don't look at people that do eat it and then judge them and say and heap condemnation on them. So the reality is when you have light and darkness, one side will always essentially depending how, well, the light will always dominate the darkness, and there's going to be discord, and then there's going to be difficulty. And so if you're bringing in unbelievers, right, because we're talking about being yoked with unbelievers, and they're bringing different ideas, the idea is how can you possibly be dwelling in light and when you're constantly exposing the darkness and they're trying to battle with you? It won't work. It's why we don't want to bring in ideas from swamis and psychics, and we, go, we don't go turn to astrology and say, well, are you a Taurus? We don't do that. Because it's darkness, it's man-made, there's no, there's no or, or demonic, however you want to look at it, there's no fellowship there, there's no sharing there. Then he expresses another one, he says, this one's kind of interesting, he says, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And, the, you know, it's, it's actually, the word might sound familiar, because in Greek, it's the uh, symphonesis, symphony, right, where we get our word symphony. And it's the idea of symbiotic and phonus, or song. Or, or noise. So the, 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 the Greek word there is the idea of noises that complement each other and build something. Does that make sense? Uh, so the, the Bible uses the word harmony. So he says, what harmony does Christ have with Belial? Now, the word Belial is pretty interesting because it's a synonym, in a sense, for Satan. It's a title. But realistically, no one actually knows when that occurred. <laughs> Because in the Old Testament, it's a word, it's two words, kind of a, a, a conjunction. It's two words that may, it means no worth or not having worth. So in the Old Testament, that word Belial, or the Greek is Belial, is, excuse me, over and over again used to describe individuals who rejected God, um, Yahweh, and turned to idols. 
And so over and over again, they're referenced as worthless people or worthless men. So when Paul puts this forward, he's making the idea of what symphony, what sound, what, what collaboration of, to make you know, beautiful music, what harmony can there be between Christ and between Belial? Between those who esteem, who, who, who turn to idols, those who uh, promote the idea of idol, idolatry, and Christ who brings life through his blood. Now again, overall, and he's going to mention idols again, so we'll just cover it now. What is idolatry? And, and I think a lot of times it gets described as, well, it's anything that you put between you and God. Okay, we can go with that. But I think idolatry is significantly more deep than that. And, and this is what I mean. If you look at the localized gods of the Middle East, right? We go back to like Nimrod and all that pre-Babylon. Then when you look at the expansion and the Fertile Crescent and Canaan and so forth, and whether it be Amur that ends up being the Amorites or the Philistines and all the different, you know, Moloch and these different uh, Baal, Asherah, these different gods that were worshipped in general areas, right? All those gods, in fact, Belial could be translated the Lord of the Forest. All those gods... Uh, Baal was the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Harvest. Asherah was more, it's, I would, she wasn't Druidic because the Druids were more in Ireland, Scotland area. But there was kind of this nature goddess, fertility and so forth. So when you took your, whatever it was, whether it was going to be part of your grain or your firstborn child or anything in between, and you took them to that place and you sacrificed them, it was to get something. So you looked at this deity in your eyes, this false deity, and you said to yourself, if I give this thing, and typically the, the greater and the costlier the gift, the greater the expectation of the return, then I will get something from them. If I sacrifice my firstborn under an Asherah pole, that means that my wife will crank out way more kids, which as a, you know, if 1,500 years before Christ, if 1,500 to 2,000 years B.C., and, and even, honestly, until the Industrial Revela uh, Revelation, no, the Industrial Revolution, kids were a massive commodity. And, and even in the United States of America in 1900, go Google this. In the United States of America in 1900, only 50% of children lived past five. Go check it out. It's pretty wild. So you think about what children mean life. I mean, obviously, they're a joy and all that, but they mean your farm keeps running, right? They mean, they mean that you'll, you'll be able to pass on wealth because they're going to develop wealth with you. It's how you survived, right? And, and, and I'm not saying children are only a commodity. I'm just saying that pre-Industrial Revolution, they were, as a, as a, for, for societal continuance, they were imperative. And they are now, too, but I hope you get my point. So if you're... If you're come to this place where you're like, you know what? I will kill my firstborn child on an altar of Moloch. I'll do that. Or I will kill my firstborn child under the Asherah pole because I think what that'll mean is I might have, I might have 12 kids that live. Then you're investing in the future of your family. Right? That's how they looked at it. So you have this kind of wild, twisted stuff that's going on. So idolatry ultimately is me serving something and giving something up in order to get something back. We do that all the time. Let's not pretend that we don't. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, and this may be really mild, and I'm not against Netflix in the least, 
but we will sacrifice our time to Netflix in order to receive comfort, won't we? If we're having a bad day, I'm willing to sacrifice my 10 bucks at Pioneer Market for some ice cream and then go back and binge watch something on Netflix. I'm sacrificing to Netflix for what? Because I want some sort of relief from stress in my life. And I'm convinced that the more I give to that, the more I'll receive from it. So we can do this in a lot of different ways. Obviously not are all as violent or extreme as worshiping Asherah or Moloch or something like that. But the point is, all the time, we're willing to make concession and sacrifice to something that is not of Christ in order to find something that only Christ can give us. We just don't embrace it that way. I'm willing to, in, in, some respect, in the relational sense that this often gets attached to, I'm willing to sacrifice my desire to have a godly spouse in order just to have a spouse. That happens a lot. And I don't have any, I'm not trying to assault anybody with that. But a lot of times we're willing to make those sacrifices in, in order to have something that we think will satisfy us. Only in the end to realize we've been robbed. We robbed ourselves. But he makes so this idea, he says, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And the reality is you can't. Christ and Belial can't sing together. Belial demands sacrifice. Belial demands your all in order to give you something that you think you need. Whereas Christ sacrificed everything to give you what you need. They cannot contain, they can't, they can't be at the same place. They can't go the same way. And so he's, he's making another illustration. You cannot have these two dynamics in your church. And then by you know, extension, you can't have the two dynamics in your life. He goes, I mean, you can, but it's going to be destructive. People are going to get hurt. He goes on from there and he says, he says, or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, I know we've already covered the word common, but this is actually a different Greek word. The first one was sharing. Uh, this one means more portion. It's the word meris. And so he says, what portion or what is it that someone who is believing and trusting and walking with Jesus, what can they possibly have in common with someone who does not? And again, if you go to work, right, it doesn't matter if you are, whatever, I don't know, fill in the blank of jobs. You could be uh, working at a barbecue place together with an unbeliever, right? And you're going to have a common goal, and it's to make good barbecue and to make money. And, and that is what it is. But when, you, when you're talking about the spiritual ideas or, or being yoked together for God's kingdom and for spiritual goals, you, you have no portion. They don't share the same goals, right? As unbelievers, we're told in, in Romans chapter 1 and 2, as unbelievers, we seek one thing. One thing, and it's our own satisfaction and our own fulfillment. That's what we seek, right? And, and we might seek it by joining the Peace Corps because it makes us feel good to do good things. You ever thought about how twisted that is? I'm going to go serve other people because it makes me feel good. Well, that's wild. That's, I mean, what if we just served other people because it was the right thing to do? <laughs> that's what Christ did. But my point is that... that as an unbeliever, you're never going to share a portion with a believer. You might have temporarily aligned ideas to, to, to complete worldly tasks, and that's why we can work with unbelievers all day long. But for example, if you get a little bit more intimate and you decide, I'm going to start a business, and I'm going to bring this unbeliever on in, in a business. I'm not saying it's a sin. The Bible never says thou shalt not enter into business with an unbeliever. It never says that. But the reality is that you, if you're walking with Jesus, 
we're going to have different goals typically than an unbeliever. And at some point, you will have a difficulty in philosophy because your heart is not for money. Your heart is not to get all you can out of this business. Your heart is to be a blessing to Christ's kingdom. Whereas an unbeliever could care less about Christ's kingdom. They might want to feed hungry people or something like that. But in the end, that's not Christ's kingdom, is it? Christ's kingdom is people knowing Christ and receiving him as Savior. And that can just never be a priority or a place where two circles you know, uh, meet each other and have a portion. It just can never be. And it can't be in a church. So we don't want to bring those things in. He says there, then he says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and with idols? Uh, there again, the word agreement, it's, just, it's the idea of union, to be able to literally to place two things together. So he says, what Christ's temple versus the temple of idols. How can there ever be a, a, a place where two things can be together in there? And they can't, right? Because serving an idol is for a different purpose, and it's selfish. Whereas serving Christ is laying down our life because he loves us. And we want to be part of what he's called us to. And he's working through us in the power of his spirit. It's two completely different dynamics. You can't have both of those dynamics in a church. Either you're going to use idolatry, blame, and shame. And if you serve Jesus, you'll feel better about yourself. Or you serve Jesus and he'll just give you all the money and you'll never get sick. Or whatever thing you want to mix in there. It, just, it can't coexist with the fact that God is just good to us. You can't mix the two. There's no portion between the two. Now he's going to quote the Old Testament. This is a really interesting quote in the Old Testament because it's, Paul literally takes from like Exodus, or not Exodus, but um, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah. He takes all these verse phrases from these different prophets of old and then he makes his own melody, uh, medley with them. These are, when you read this here, there's no verses in the Old Testament that say this. These are all pieces of verses that Paul has put together from different places in the Old Testament that have a similar idea for the covenant to Israel, right? We have the new covenant in Christ. Israel had the Israeli covenant to them. And so Paul is putting these all together to show that in the same way that God was relating to Israel, even in their rebellion, that he's now saying the same thing to us to invite us to be part of the fellowship. So he says this. He says, as God has said... I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and, my, and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So he lays out these promises that are uh, in the covenant to Israel, and he applies them in a different context to the church. But check out what they're about. They're about fellowship. Isn't that interesting? They're about purity, but they're about fellowship. So this idea where he says, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, it's actually part of that is a quote out of Deuteronomy where God is saying, you need to not have idols in your life. You need to not, for them very practically, you need to not go to the high places where the ashras are. You need, not, you need to not go uh, into the, the, the high peaks where Moloch's, altars are. And he says, if you do that, then I will be among you. But think back to what we've just been talking about. What's this whole context? If I am constantly looking to something else, whether it's however we categorize it, whether it's darkness or idolatry uh, or, you know, whatever different ideas, uh, non-Christian ideas, if I'm constantly going to those things to receive satisfaction, safety, uh, all those things, 
Am I even available for God to work that in my life? No, I'm not, am I? If I'm constantly turning to self-medicate myself, if I'm having a six-pack or I'm smoking some weed before bed in order to uh, find tranquility in this life, I'm not giving God an opportunity, am I? What I'm doing is I'm suppressing myself in order to find what I want, which is tranquility. And so that does, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no longer available to even let God do that. So I'm not talking about anxiety meds here, all right? So please don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm not talking about clinical depression or anything like that. I'm talking about you and I, when we're trying to deal with our problems in our lives by simply sacrificing or looking to get something from somewhere else. That's all I'm talking about. So he makes the point, and God's saying in all these, if we were to turn to Jeremiah's places, he's telling Israel, stop going to these other idols. Stop going to idolatry to find your comfort and your security and your safety. And so he's saying, if you walk with me, if you leave those things behind and come to me, then he says, I'll live with you. I'll live with them. So the implication isn't like, oh, you're yucky, and so I'm not going to touch you. The implication is, if you're there with me, then this is what will be the result of it. This is what will happen. So he says, I will live with them. That's, that's intimate, right? I'll live with you. I'll be with you. If you, if you live with someone, you're, if you're, when you're at home, you're generally with them, right? And you're in like the same living areas. You're hanging out together. So this idea that God is, let's not just skip over it, but this, to, to embrace the idea that God says, I, I want to live with you. Day in and day out. I want to be part of your life. I want to be in your home. I want to experience these things. You know, and then he goes on to say, I'll, I'll walk with them. You know, generally speaking, you only walk with people that you like. Right? Otherwise, you speed walk or come up with an excuse. Right? So you only walk with, walk with people that you like. If someone calls you up and says, hey, let's go for a walk, and you don't like them, I mean, you may do it because you should or whatever. I don't know if you should or not, but you may do it. But you only call up people that you want to walk with because you like them. And so God says, I'll walk with you. I'll be with you. What, what do you see with, with uh, Adam and Eve? He walked with them in the cool of the day. You know, just fellowship. Walking insinuates like chatting. Having kind of nonchalant dialogue a lot of times. Sometimes it's serious dialogue. But again, it's this nearness. It's this projection moving towards something. He says, I'll be their God. Now there's the authority side of that, where he says, if you'll, if you'll be in my midst, then I will be your God. I'll, I'll lead you. I'll bless you. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll work in your life. He says, that's the relationship I want with you. I'll be as an authority. He's, he's, he's love and he's the authority. So all of his commands, they're good. Anything he would share with us is going to be good, even when he says no. He goes on from there and he says, and they will be my people. You know, it's funny because one of the, the major movements that you see, at least in our society, is and I'm an independent and I do what I want. When I want, how I want. So take that, everyone. Right? That's, that's the other half of the internet. And so, but there's yet, there's part of us that we love to belong somewhere. Isn't that one of the things that, that is so attractive about a good marriage or a, a, a great spouse? You say, I belong to this person. They're mine and I'm theirs. 
And he says, you know what, if you're with me, if you're walking with me, if you leave these things behind and turn to me, you'll be my people that I'll set claim upon you. I'll, I'll and, and you know, there's some other verses in the New Testament, this idea of proclaiming God, with, you know, Christ being with us and us proclaiming God as his people. This public, um, not just affirmation, but proclamation. These are my people, you know. I think for many of us, you ever felt embarrassed about one of God's people? He says, no, you'll be my people. I won't be embarrassed by you. He goes on for there, verse 17. So therefore, so because of this promise of this intimacy, this fellowship, therefore, the answer is this, come out from among them and be separate. Again, this is not, we know he's not saying don't ever hang out with unbelievers. Lots of people throughout time, meaning well, I'm sure, have created convents and monk places at the top of spires and all sorts of things. So you can get away from the evil world and, and then God will be with them. That's a, I appreciate their heart and I'm sure that they meant well. But the reality is we're not called away from the world in, in a proximity setting. We're called away from the world's ideas and ideologies. That's why at church, we don't trash talk each other when something goes wrong, right? Instead, we go back to that person and, you know what? When we were at the, the potluck and you punched me in the face, it made me feel really sad, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever it might be, you know? When you grabbed the last chicken leg, that made me feel kind of sad inside. <laughs> Whatever. But we, you know, we come back and we dialogue, right? Because we want to be mature Christians. And we say, and, and then we can hear other people out. That's not what the world does, does it? The world jumps on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever other grams are out there. And it's just like, these people suck. I went to their church. Not enough people greeted me. To hell with them, right? That's how the world treats it. But we're not the world, are we? We reconcile. We love. We care. And then when we don't, we repent. And then we love and we care, right? And then when we don't again, we repent again. And we love and we care. That's what we're called to do as believers. To walk like Christ walked. And so when he says, come out and be separate, the idea is reject that ideology in your church. We don't trash talk each other. We want to we reach out when we've been offended. Hey, when you did that, 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 that offend, I didn't understand that. But we, you, know, you know a great way to reach out to people that offend you? Could you help me understand what happened there? Just tuck that line away. Could you help me understand when you said that or when you did that? Could you help me understand what that was? Because this is how it felt to me. Rather than, uh, I was at the potluck last week and you took the last chicken leg because you're covetous. We all know what the result of that is going to be, right? At best, it's going to be a silent turnaround and a walkout. At worst, it's going to be a brawl with the chicken leg. I mean, you know, it's... So we want to humble ourselves. We don't... We want to separate ourselves from the ideologies and from the demonic anti-love philosophies of this world. And he says, if you do that, he says, I'll receive you. He says, touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you. Now again, <clears throat> if we go back and we read these things, we have to look at it through the lens of who Jesus is and the quote. We don't have time, so we're not going to. But if you go back, the idea is not you touch something that's yucky and so now I don't receive you. That's not the idea. And it's definitely not the idea in the New Testament, right? Because we're received in Christ. How are we right with God? In Christ, through his blood. 
right? Through the cross. That's our righteousness. So we don't take this and go, well, if you're dabbling in porn, that means that God doesn't receive you. No, he already received you in Christ. If you're dabbling in porn, you're destroying your brain. You're training your brain to objectify women. You're training your brain or to objectify men. You're training to, your brain study show to, to love violence and sex. Barna did a huge study about that. They estimate that about 70% of pornography has violence in it. And the way your brain works is you get a dopamine hit and, and you enjoy the sexual part of it. And then when there's violence intermixed into it, especially as men who have very little emotional attachment in their brain compared to sexual centers in their brain, you train yourself to love violence. It's wild. Porn literally promotes sexual assault in our minds. So if you're forgiven if you're looking at pornography because it's in Christ. But you're destroying yourself, and eventually it'll destroy the people around you, causing great hurt. So we have a calling to leave that behind. So the idea isn't like, I'm not going to mess with you because you're yucky and you're touching yucky stuff. All right? The idea is stop messing with that so you can receive what I have for you. If you look at all these quotes, they didn't come when Israel was like in its prime. Because Israel's prime was like two days. It was. They're very much like us. It came to them when they were idolatrous. It came to them when they were involved in things that made pornography look like Sunday school. That's when all these promises came to Israel. That God would have them back, that God would love them, that he would bring them back. And sometimes he brought very hard things into their life because he loved them so much. And would to God he bring hard things into our life to humble us and bring brokenness to us and repentance to us also. So this, the idea isn't, hey, like, you know, I'm not going to touch you. It's kind of like, anybody here ever had a kid that touched poo before? Whether it was like a torpedo in the bathtub or dog poo or something? So when that happens, do you run away from your kid and be like, I'm never touching you again because you're unclean? You might start with that thought. No, what do you do? You grab their hand. Well, unless it's a bathtub incident, and then you're like, Get, you have like the dog towel you wrap around them to get them out. and then, You know what I'm saying. But if they touch something that's yucky, like what do you do? You grab their hand. And they're kids, so what do they do? You know, they try to wrestle you. And somehow they get that poo on the finger strength. And, right, and they're moving their arm all around. And you're just like, just don't, just stop touching it. Just don't do that. What are you doing, right? And you've got them by the hand and, they're, and they think you're the, the, the enemy of their soul. Because you won't let them like finger paint with the poo or touch their face or something. We're the same way. We want to touch this stuff. It's just nasty. It just absolutely destroys. And God is so merciful. He grabs us by the hand and we're like, let go of me. You don't know what's good. I want this in my eye. You know, and God's like, no, oh, stop. That's what he's saying here. He's a good parent. He's saying, stop touching poo and then messing with it. You're going to destroy yourself. You don't know how gross it is. You don't know how terrible it is. Stop doing that. That's all, that's all he's saying here. And he says, I'll receive you. You'll be with me. I'll be walking with you. I'll be near you. He's, I have all, this, all these things, all this blessing for your life, my presence, my care, even in the worst of circumstances. You would, God, stop touching the unclean thing. And that will prepare you. It'll, 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 it'll put you in a position where you can receive everything you have from me. Verse 18, he says, and 
I'll be a father to you. Isn't it incredible that every instance, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, every instance that when God talks about a relationship with his people, it's always radically intimate, tight-knit, father-son, father-daughter, right? Um, marriage to his son, right? The, the marriage feast of the lamb. It's always brother-sister. It's always this familial, incredible intimacy. And he says, I will be a father to you. Not like a crummy father that's like in the corner and, and just wants to see you suffer through things or is passive-aggressive or something, but a good father, someone who protects and watches over, someone who grabs your hand when you stuck it in poo, right? I mean, just it's good parenting. And he says, that's who I am to you. He says, I'm, I'll be your father, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. These are the promises that God has. So he's saying, stop messing with stuff. Stop messing with idolatry. Stop sacrificing to things that cannot give you what you really want. And so in verse 7, he says this, or chapter 7, I should say, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So it comes down to this. He's, excuse me, talked about his love, his kindness, everything he has. And he says, because of these promises, what promises? Well, the promise medley he just made from the Old Testament. But we have much more than that in the New Testament, don't we? We have much more. We have the idea of, what is it, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Is, you know, let's read that real quick. This is a, a favorite of mine. In Hebrews chapter 4, he's talking about entering into rest, different things like that, some pretty awesome ideas. But then he, he, he comes to this place in Hebrews chapter 4 in, in verse 14. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to em, uh, empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen, huh? You know, when do you need grace and mercy? When you've really screwed up, right? That's when you need mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve, simply. So if you, go, if you get a speeding ticket and you go to court and you say, please don't give me a ticket for the full speed, right? What you're asking is, can I have mercy? Yes, I did this thing, but I'm asking you to pretend like I didn't do this thing and charge me less money for the thing that I'm not saying I did, but it appears like I did, right? That's what you do. You're asking for mercy. And so he says that when we need mercy, when we need to not get what we deserve to get, that's when we go to God because his throne is a throne of grace. That's awesome. How many of us view God's throne as a throne of judgment? Many of us. And one day it will be to those who have rejected his son, who have stepped over the body of Christ to, re to reject him. The judgment will come for that. But for whoever is called upon the name of the Lord, they're saved. And whoever is ever called upon the name of the Lord has a right when they need mercy, when they've sinned, when they've committed wickedness, has been given a right by God to come in and receive the mercy that they need. We have an incredible God. We have, in Christ, made an incredible sacrifice. 
there's so much more to be said, but you know, we're out of time here. But this this idea that since we have these crazy great promises, promises that seem like a dream, don't they? That God would walk among us, that He would be my Father, that He would be willing publicly to say that I'm His I'm His kid. I wouldn't want to publicly say I'm His kid, but that He would claim me. It's incredible. And he says, because we have these promises about how God looks at and interacts with us, we want to reciprocate that. Not because of guilt, not because of shame. That was taken care of in Christ. But because we recognize what he's done. Because he loves us. We're reciprocating love and then comes in reverence. You know, when you have a good parent, typically you don't want to disrespect them, right? Because they've been kind to you. They're good. You know, I know we're rebellious and crazy inside, especially in the teen years. Like, I get that. But realistically, when you know someone loves you, when you're convinced of it in your heart, it does, do you go out of your way to disrespect them? Not typically, right? You reverence them. You appreciate them. You do things that you might not do for other people because you have this relationship with them. And so he comes to this place and he says, look, God's given us these incredible promises. And he says, so due to that, a reverence for that and understanding and embracing of that, Let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. And we're so out of time. Let me just say this. When he says body and spirit, he is not saying don't ever have something that contaminates your body. Like, that's ridiculous. If you're going to walk outside and start your car, guess what you're going to breathe? Hydrocarbons. So guess what that does? It contaminates your body. Right? So he's not saying move to a jungle somewhere. And make sure no matter what happens, nothing unhealthy ever happens to you. I mean, for crying out loud, when Nehemiah finds a copy of the law, what does he tell? And all God's, the, the Jews, they start crying because they realize we have not fulfilled the law. And Nehemiah stands up and he says, I don't know why you're crying. This is an incredible day. We found God's law for us. So instead, everybody go to their house and eat the sweet and drink the fat. Or eat the fat and drink the sweet. It's like my life verse. He says, go there. Eat the fat and drink the sweet. Guess what happens if you drink too much sweet and eat the fat? This. This happens, right? More to contaminate. You know, you have to be careful. But he's not, that's not what he's talking about. The idea is, as a whole person, as a body, as a spirit, as a person, don't do things that contaminate you. Don't do things that are going gonna to change what God wants to do in your life or, or divert it. That's the thing he's, he's talking about. Walk in a way where you're inviting and you're uh, available for, and you're proactively seeking what it is that God has for you. Instead of walking in a way that's causing those things that he wants for you either impossible or very difficult to occur in your life. Does that make sense? And so he says that we're gonna, we want to do that because of the promises. And he says what happens is it's perfecting holiness. And this is an active tense verb, meaning it's a continual process that's going on in our lives as we continue to turn back to God to receive what he has for us. So here's the deal. God has great things for you. It's not just like some lame pastorly thing to say. He literally has great things for you. He has great fellowship for you between just you and him, if you want it. He has great works for you to do. Uh, the, the word there, his workmanship, when, in Ephesians 2.10, that word is workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, poema or uh, artistry, that he wants to be in harmony with you. He wants you to be a, a, a representative of his love because you know what it is to be loved and to receive it. 
He wants you to be able to pass on his grace because you know what it is to be a recipient of grace and to receive it. And then that will manifest itself in a million different ways. And whatever your gifting is, whatever God has for you. And, and no, you know, that's not for me to say. That's for you to find out. But it's to enjoy the journey as you do find out. He just got great things for you. And to, to, we don't want to bring in other philosophies of this world into our private lives, into our church. Because what he has is ultimately the best for us. And it won't let us down. You know, if you feel stuck in your sin, you know, whatever it might be. Whatever habitual sin that you can get stuck in, that we all can get stuck in, right? The Bible says very clearly there in Hebrews, he says that there, it's the sin that so easily entangles us. You ever felt that way? Every single time this comes up in my life, I always do the same thing. I always succumb to fear. I always succumb to pride. I always succumb to lust. I always, you know, whatever. If you feel that way today, come pray with us. There's nothing magic about us. You can pray with the person next to you, but we would love to pray with you. And maybe you need some help. We'd love to help you. Talk it out, whatever. We're available. Not out of condemnation or trying to shame you into something, but because God has incredible things for you. In the meantime, we have some communion here today. It's an opportunity that Jesus told us we can eat the bread and remember his body. To remember that he lived on the earth, that he spoke to people, 